A reading from Matthew. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our reading this afternoon, this evening, that Casey just read, is taken from the first third of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, what many would consider to be the most famous sermon ever preached. Uh, even if you're not familiar with its contents sort of, you know, exactly, you're probably well aware of what it teaches. This is where we get the Lord's Prayer from. Uh, this is where love your enemy is, uh, Jesus instructs people to do that and to turn the other cheek. It's sort of a, the great compendium of his moral teachings. But today I want to focus um, really on how it would have been received by those who were hearing it live, because it's quite a doozy of a speech. Um, so you imagine this. So you're in, the, you're in Galilee, and there's a sea there. It's a big, huge lake. And there's a, a hillside. And Jesus goes up on top of the hillside, and you're, you're sitting there, you're listening. What's he going to say? And he begins by saying, you have heard it said, dot, 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 then quotes a portion of the Ten Commandments. Uh, those listening would have known that the, the, he was referencing Moses. You have heard it said by Moses, dot, dot, dot. But then he goes on and but I say, but I say. Jesus is asserting that he speaks with an authority that rivals and even supplants that of the greatest hero of the Jewish faith. It's a bold move. And he does it a bunch of times here in only a few times in what we heard, but he continues throughout the three chapters in Matthew. Now, let me shift gears for a second. Perhaps you remember, or maybe I, I hope for your own sake, that you've seen This is Spinal Tap. It was a great mockumentary, uh, you know, without which there would be no office, that sort of thing, uh, from the 1980s, which parodies a he- British heavy metal band touring America. And it is a, a wonderful film, but uh, the scene that I want to tell you about, if you've forgotten it, uh, there's a Rob Reiner who directed When Harry Met Sally. He's the director, and he directed the film. He he's, 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 he's interviews at one point the lead guitarist named Nigel Tufnell, right? 
And uh, Nigel's being interviewed, and he shows Rob all of his amplifiers. He loves his amps, like a lot of guitar heads do. And he's especially interested in showing him the dials on his amps, because unlike every other amp that's ever been manufactured, these dials go to 11. He's very proud of this. The interviewer's a little puzzled and says, well... Why don't you just make 10 louder? And it doesn't compute to Nigel at all. He just sort of says, but these go to 11. They go one louder. All right. The Sermon on the Mount goes one louder than the law of Moses. Jesus turns up the volume. Forgive me. I can't resist. You have heard it said, thou shalt not murder, but I say to you, if you have anger in your heart, it's the same thing. You have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say, if you have lust in your heart, it's the same thing. This is a radical, harsh equivalence that he's drawing. He is equating lust with adultery and anger with murder. He's collapsing the line between action and motivation. And if it makes you uncomfortable, it should. If it makes you uncomfortable, it should. Because this is not what you and I usually do. At least it's not what I do. If I'm lying in bed at 10.30 and I manage not to give in to the Ben and Jerry's craving, I feel as though I've accomplished something. I wake up in the morning with the sense that I've had some kind of victory. I wanted, I had the motivation to eat mint chocolate cookie the entire pint, but I did not go through with it, right? Well, according to the Sermon on the Mount, I've already failed, all right? But let's go a little further. Um, if you've ever gotten in a fight with a loved one, have you, have you ever said, well, well, I said that, but I didn't mean it. Well, you should have heard what I was going to say. I, I, you know, I didn't even let you know what I'm really feeling. <clears throat> Doesn't work. What we think is if I wanted something but I didn't take it, well, then I did a good job. But Christ fires back at us. He says, well, why did you even want that thing in the first place? The Sermon on the Mount makes what you mean by your behavior all important. Christ wipes away our precious distinction between motive and action. And it's a distinction we almost always use to justify ourselves. But let's go further, because he's going really far with this. When people say Jesus is a great moral teacher, this is the moral teaching. You could give all of your money to charity, You could care for the sick all day long, and it still wouldn't count if you did it for the wrong reasons. Unless altruism is altruism all the way down, it doesn't register as altruism at all, not with God. Or in the language of sort of small children, you can't just apologize to your sibling, you have to mean it. Right? You can say the words but there's got to be conviction behind them. Easier said than done. But Jesus is after purity of action and purity of motivation. Um, How does that make you feel? Take a minute. Let it seek in. 
because it makes me feel terrible. Terrible. Makes me feel condemned, trapped, confounded, and more than a little resentful. How could you possibly tell me that God is judging me according to this standard? What, what chance does that give me? Well, the writer Francis Spufford writes about this uh, wonderful this sermon. He calls it, quote-unquote, thrillingly impractical. The Sermon on the Mount is thrillingly impractical. What he says is that Jesus makes, frankly, impossible demands. Instead of asking for specific actions, he offers us general but lunatic principles. The Sermon on the Mount claims that you should give your possessions away, that you should refuse to defend yourself, that you should love strangers as much, if not more, than your own family, that you should behave as if there is no tomorrow. These principles do not amount to a sustainable program. They deliberately ignore the question of how they could possibly be maintained. And yet, it is a beautiful program. Imagine a world in which there was not only no murder, but no anger. Twitter wouldn't exist. <laughs> Imagine a world in which there was, uh, you know... Uh, not only no adultery, but no lust. I mean, you guess uh, the rest of social media wouldn't exist. The, um, but imagine a world in which people not only did acts of love, but they did them because they meant them, not because they were trying to get credit or signal something about their worth to the rest of the world. Where people treated other folks as loving because they actually loved them. It's beautiful. Now, but it's also frightening. Maybe you remember, I didn't know this, someone brought it to my attention. In 2014, Bill Gates accepted a challenge from Magnus Carlsen, the world champion chess player. Magnus Carlsen, at the time, was a 23-year-old Norwegian phenom. Um, Bill Gates loves chess, and as we all know, he's a formidable person. He's not only, uh, you know, head of Microsoft, but he's this incredible philanthropist, and he seems to have a grasp of the world, and he loves chess. And so Magnus says, okay, I'll, w- let's do this. We'll do this on national television. And the 23-year-old Carlson checkmated Bill Gates in nine moves. It took 79 seconds. Now again, if you'll forgive me, Jesus is making a similar move on the chessboard of ethics. One which appears absurd and completely one-sided, but also does something that is deeply and urgently important to those who are hearing it. First, by making the religious life an internal affair, he is taking aim at the center of our hearts. In his view, the inner world is just as important as the outer one. In fact, it might even be primary, which makes sense, because if we're honest, that's where we usually live. We're occupied by our feelings, by our emotions, by our fears, by our anxieties, by our hopes. Those are the things that drive our actions. Those come second. People live inside themselves, not outside themselves. But secondly, he is doing away with the ranking of sins. You see, in his picture, in the Sermon on the Mount, there are no longer sins 
plural, actions and so forth. There's just sin, capital S, the condition. There is one river with many tributaries, but all of it is made up of the same murky water. And that, my friends, is the point. Spufford summarizes this magnificently when he says, to notice the consequence, notice the consequence of bringing the entire human race to the point of moral checkmate, of having an ideal of human motive and behavior that is not sized for human brains and bodies and lives. The consequence is that everyone fails, really everyone the people that look like they've got it all together on Sunday afternoon, and those who've just uh, arrived at prison. Listening to the Sermon on the Mount, we discover that we all stand before God on the same footing, that there is no meaningful comparison to be made between you and the person sitting next to you or the person sitting across whatever divide you feel you're on, at least not in God's eyes. We're talking here about nothing less than true equality. Taking the Sermon on the Mount seriously at face value leaves a a thinking, reflective person with only one option when it comes to God, only one prayer, and that is the prayer that we say every single week here, which is, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Let me give you an example and then I'm finished. In, in 1889, when the crown prince of Austria-Hungary, Rudolf Otto von Habsburg, died, his funeral began with a, a lengthy procession, including his casket. And it's, they stop at the door of the cloister. They stopped at the door of the cloister where the funeral would take place. And a representative from the royal family has this dialogue with the master, with the uh, prior of the church, who, of the cloister, the, 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 the person in charge. And this is what happens. The master of ceremony, this representative, he, he, he knocks loudly three times on the massive door. I was wearing much harder shoes this morning. It worked better. Okay. Uh, the prior answers from behind the closed door, Who desires entry? The representative answers, Rudolf Otto of Austria, once crowned prince of Austria-Hungary, royal prince of Bohemia, Dalmatia, Croatia, Slavonia, and Galicia, grand duke of Tuscany and Krakow, duke of Lorraine, Salzburg, and Styria, grand prince of Transylvania, margrave of Morovia, princely count of Tyrol, lord of Trieste, grand voivode of Serbia. The prior responded, we do not know him. The master of ceremony then knocks again loudly three times. Who desires entry? The representative answers, Dr. Rudolf Otto von Habsburg, president of the Pan-European Union and of the European Parliament, honorary doctor of many universities, member of numerous venerable academies and institutes, recipient of high civil and ecclesiastical honors, awards, and medals, which were given him in recognition of his decades-long struggle for the freedom of peoples, for justice, and for right. The prior's response, we do not know him. The master of ceremony again knocks three times. Who desires entry? 
This time, the response is hushed. Otto, a mortal and sinful man. With this, the doors to the church are flung open, and with the words from the prior, then let him come in. God, we learn, does not relate to us according to some system of status, of merit and demerit, of accolade and applause. This is what we mean when we say that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. You see, the Sermon on the Mount robs its hearers, robs you, robs me of any foothold of superiority that we're clinging to. It robs you of whatever it is you're using to judge your neighbors. Christ cuts through the fog of self-righteousness, which drives so many of our antipathies. Because the implication of his moral perfectionism is that everybody is guilty. And if everybody is guilty, then nobody gets to congratulate themselves. And murderers and adulterers cannot be shunned. In other words, it puts us all in the same category, which is the category of sinner. Not the category of us versus them. The category of us versus us. As Mary Lou says about church, we're all here because we're not all here. But the Sermon on the Mount, at least its preacher, does not leave us there. Indeed, in the passage immediately preceding what we heard read tonight, Christ says that he has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He has not come to diminish, discount, degrade the ethical and moral standard of God's kingdom and vision for the world. No, he has, he's not come uh, just to, to outline the sublime yet impossible ideals of God, but to be that ideal, to love in the way that we are unable, to forgive in the way that we cannot. And on the cross, to bear the brunt of the anger we can't control and the the lust and the false testimony and to pay every last penny that we might be reconciled to God. You see, a few chapters after the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is reiterating this amplified um, teaching about, in this case, money and giving away everything you own. The disciples hear it, and they ask what most of us should ask when we hear the Sermon on the Mount. They, they're greatly astonished and say, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Later on in the same book of Matthew, Jesus meets a tax collector, a reprobate, a degenerate, a mobster, Matthew himself, and he invites him to follow him, and he invites himself to dinner at Matthew's house, and people are upset, and his disciples are asked by the onlookers, they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, if the Sermon on the Mount levels the playing field and casts us all in the same role of sinner, 
Well, then it also puts us in the category of people that Jesus came to save. Which is good and glorious news. And it's simply another long-winded way of saying that whoever you are, and whatever you've done, and whatever you said but didn't mean, and whatever you meant but didn't say, however deafening the law may thunder around you, Well, God has gone one louder, booming to you this evening, these three words, come on in, come on in, amen.